to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. If you want to open your Bibles uh, or device uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to be starting in chap- um, chapter 2, verse 5, we're going to go through the end of the chapter. We'll also have the uh, verses up there that we're going to cover up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. We've seen through this uh, section of Scripture so far in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, these, these motives and themes that, that he's pointing the Corinthians to, that, that Christ should be our all, that Christ is our supreme treasure, um, that, that in gazing and, and being found in him, we find our true salvation that we, found our, we find our eternal life. Um, also through this, what he's trying to get the Corinthians to see is um, this idea that God's paradigm is not our own. God often uses weakness in us to show forth his own glory and power, which is counterintuitive. We, we think that, well, especially if you're a Christian, wouldn't we be stronger? Wouldn't we be better? Wouldn't we be obviously more prosperous? And that's what the Corinthians were dealing with is in an already very booming, prosperous area. And so um, the thinking is, well, that just spills over into the church. If you're following this God, that would make sense that we would also have prosperity. All the other religions, all the other temples teach that. That's what gods do, right? They, they, they qualify you as, as being a prosperous one. And so um, Paul's trying to identify with Christ to show them that's actually um, not what's been going on in, in our lives, the apostles, and also um, as the church is spreading that, that part of this is a very um, antithetical thinking as opposed to worldly thinking. And so um, that's what Christ had taught. That's what the early church was teaching. Um, He also wanted to show them that his identification with Christ, which has produced suffering and weakness, is actually what has led to their salvation. Him being willing to go through sacrifices and suffering is what brought the gospel to them. And the very message itself uh, is a crazy message. God himself going into weakness and suffering and dying. That, that's not usually the, the, the typical idea. And so um, the questions that I said each week, we can ask these two questions. And I think that um, this will begin to flesh itself out a little bit more, hopefully, as we see the kind of some things brought today. Um, this first question, how can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm so obsessed with pride and self-seeking and comfort? Again, I hope today you'll be you'll begin to see why I keep these questions up there. They're very subtle, our pursuits of comfort and self-seeking and pride. Very, very subtle. Um, and then what implications does that truth have on me loving Christ and making him known to others? Last week we um, looked at Paul's explanation for his altered plans. If you remember last week, that section was where Paul was defending himself because he had made plans to them. And you see that section in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 where Paul had told them he was going to come and visit them and collect an offering, a grace gift that was going to take back to the poor in Jerusalem. Um, Some plans had changed and he'd went another way. And then he'd also sent uh, Timothy back, Timothy or Titus back, and and I think it was Timothy, and he sent him back. And then when 
he met with them, um, he said, man, there's some, some crazy stuff going on. Um, not only is the church still really jacked up, as we know about the Corinthian church, but also they're not trusting in your authority anymore. They're not listening to you. Paul and, and some others had planted this church a few years ago, and now um, they were in, in a really bad place. So that's what he was dealing with last week. It was Timothy. And so um, um, this week we're going to see this very clearly. So these three things through this section of chapter 2, um, verses 5 through 17. First of all, discipline has the goal of restoration, forgiveness, grace, and love. So church discipline has the goal of restoration and love and grace and forgiveness. Um, and, and this is a section uh, 5 through 11 that many scholars and atheists would say, this is why this letter must not be from God because it doesn't fit in right here. And so if you understand the context of what's going on with Paul, uh, the Corinthian church, what they've been doing in these four letters, of which we only have two, um, you would understand this does fit in and he's responding to something that had happened in the church. He's talking about church discipline there. And the second thing is Paul's spirit, uh, uh, Paul being spirit-led, he has this concern for the Corinthians. There's a work that's going on that's, that's very um, profound, and he, he decides to leave that work, even though it seems like God is doing some powerful stuff, and he leaves that because of his concern for the Corinthians. And that's in verses 12 through 13. And then um, the, the, where we'll park most of our time is uh, 14 through 17. Um, when we're captivated in Christ, there's an aroma and an awakening. And you'll see what we mean with that. So he goes into that. And he's talking about an aroma and an awakening that happens. So um, let's read um, this um, section, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 5 through 11, 5 through 17. Now remember this, this first section, it just seems like he just jumps off into something and we don't really understand the context. We don't understand who's he talking about, what's he talking about. And so this is why some people have said this, this was pieced in there later on. So, uh, someone else come and just inserted this. So we, we can't trust God's word because this doesn't fit. But when we understand the context, it does fit. So he says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to, turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to re reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of, of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. 
So Father, we come to you knowing that this is your word that, as Jason said earlier, we are weak. We are um, vessels that we're going to see today that, are, that have um, a wealth in them, a glorified wealth that we so easily overlook, that we so easily graduate from. Father, we see that your word is guiding Paul, is guiding this Corinthian church, is what's calling them back to a focus and a trance in you to be found in Christ. We see that that is a beautiful thing, that we would be completely captivated in you and what, what work you're doing. Um, would you guide us in truth, Holy Spirit, as we go through your word um, to, to let us see the significance of what you're teaching our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. So I want you to see, before we dive into the teaching, just, just a little bit of the overview of the section. So if you look in your device or your, your Bible there, that section 5 through 11, notice the break there. So he starts talking about this person that the Corinthians knew of, and it seems very clear they've spoken to him before about this situation. He had told them, here's some steps that you need to do in church discipline and correcting this brother, but it seems like I've heard that he's been corrected, he's repented. And now you're still shaming him. You're still going with him with the law, the law, the law, the law. And like, we kind of do that sometimes if you don't notice. Um, You need to be aware of what type of person. So we went through the prodigal God. We got the older brother types. We got the the younger brother types. And so you need to be aware. If if you're more bent on you love the law, the law, the law, and you're a rule keeper and that's where your safety zone is, you need to be aware of that in your, the way that you do life, the way that you do your parenting, the way that you do your finances, the way that you treat to other people. If you're the kind of the grace oriented, just more like, hey, man, we're just trusting God. It's going to work out. You need to be aware. Maybe you need a few rules. Maybe you need some structure. You need to be aware of which one. So um, this group of people, it seems like the Corinthians in all of their mess and all of the things that they were allowing to go on, they've got this one guy that they've corrected. He's repented and they're coming down hard on him. So you can see what's happening there. It may have been, some people believe that this may have been those super apostles that were also against Paul, that now they're, they're, they're kind of maybe, they seem to have had the authority. So they may be, may be the ones that are like, yeah, keep, keep telling him how bad he is. Keep telling him, keep going to him with the law, the law, the law. And so Paul's going, hey, this guy needs to be for, for, forgiven. So notice that there's this transition from that section and it goes into verse 12. And it just seems like a jump. Now, now think through this as, as a, a written letter, right? It could be he, he, he's talking to Timothy about this and he hears the situation and he, he's going, man, they need to be just graceful with this guy. They need to be loving and forgiving. And he puts the letter down and they travel a bit, two days, two weeks, two months, and he picks back up where he's it's kind of like a journal almost. Like you, you pick back up and his next statement just doesn't seem to fit. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel, like what you, you're just talking about this brother that we all know of. And so I'm saying this because people that put doubt in, in God's word or that God's word is not sufficient, you're going to run into people and hear argument that's, we can't trust God's word. And so I'm just getting you aware of that apologetic argument that this letter has several places where it seems like this isn't flowing together. This makes no sense. He just jumped into some story about some guy. Then he jumps into, hey, when I was at Troas, this happened. And then he jumps into this other section. And so it does fit together as God's word. And so I just want you to know that this is a, a section. These three parts are usually broken down. So you, you could read literally 
20 chapters on just the connection of those or why those don't connect. And I'm saying that just in case you run across that or people say, hey, yeah, 2 Corinthians is a book that has a lot of um, places that are broken up. Just know it, it does fit together if we think through how Paul taught through it. So this matter of church discipline, that first section, 5 through 11, um, like I said, uh, Discipline has the goal of restoration, forgiveness, grace, and love. Paul encourages them to be reconciled through forgiveness with this brother who had been sinning or doing something. We do not know the scenario. We do not know exactly. I remember there are two letters to the Corinthians that we don't have. We have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's two other letters that we don't have. So they were not inspired. They were not God's word. God would have been able. Don't, don't feel like, we're like we missed out on something. And God just like dropped the ball, wasn't able to do that. There's no scriptures out there that God just couldn't be powerful enough to get into his word. And so Paul wants them to see that the goal here is that there should be reconciliation, forgiveness, and love. So I want, when we speak about this idea of church discipline, um, church discipline, some of, so first of all, just know there's a whole bunch of people who have never heard anything about that. They don't even know what church discipline is. There's others who are aware and they've heard of church discipline and they've never seen it practiced. It sounds really, really scary, kind of like backwoods, hokey, and cultish. And so, um, and then there's people that have seen some good examples of it. So when I talk about church discipline, um, um, it, it's going on all the time. Now, first of all, it, it's happening inside a church body. Paul is saying this to the Corinthian church, a local assembly of people. He's not talking to secular Hollywood. Do you understand that? He's not talking to secular Hollywood. He's not talking to liberal politicians. He's talking to a body of Christ. Don't expect lost people to act like saved people. Okay? Don't expect our moral Christian rules should be applied to lost people, okay? So he's talking about the local church. This is a church body. This is where we should be evidenced by Christian love and Christian forgiveness because the God we say we're following was slaughtered to forgive us. Surely that's worked its way into your thinking. Well, no, I just want it my way. I think this guy should do this. I think it should be this way. That's, that's not it. It should be love and grace and forgiveness. That's what we should be embodied by. And there's a meekness that flows out of this. So this should be the same also for other people outside the church that we would forgive them. Not necessarily train them and have expectations on them, but we should forgive them. That's what Christ was doing, right? So this is difficult because a lot of us have situations where maybe it's people in, e e even in your workplace, it could be family members. They're not playing by the same rules, are they? You ever have people that they're, they're not playing by the same rules? And they will throw it in your face. You Christians, you're supposed to be, and you're like, we're bending over backwards in grace, trying to be forgiving. We're, we're, we're trying to go by God's word here, and, and you're just angry, and you're just you're getting to treat people like this, and you're not acting this way. And, and sometimes they'll think that they're believers, but in this case, Paul's talking about church discipline inside the church. So church discipline happens all the time, and it's ongoing. Now, so again, if you're the crowd that has never heard about church discipline, there are steps in Matthew 18 that talks about that. There's also some steps for um, if you're talking about church leadership in First Timothy. That so uh, that Matthew 18 where he talks about go to your brother. So you know the famous parts like hey, so if your brother or sister sins against you, you go to him and let them know. Hey, first of all, you don't have to. You know what you could do? You know what? That's not a bill, big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to forgive and I'm going to let that go. I think here's where we struggle at times. We think we're doing that. 
but I pull out my list and I've written it down. I'm forgiving, but I'm just going to let this one go. But it's Monday. He seemed to do it again, so I'm just going to write this one down. I've got two on my list. And it's noon on Monday, and he did it again. Uh, There's three or four times now. But I'm just letting it go. And you know what? We're not letting it go. We've got a list. And by Friday, it's 20 points that we're holding against them. And we're hurt, and we're bitter, and we're not really letting it go and forgiving. That's what Matthew 18 is saying. Hey, some of those things, you can just let go. But if you're going to go to your brother... Go to him and tell him, that, hey, here's where this sin is. So in that situation, what can happen is there, there's a goal of repentance. Oh, man, I didn't realize I was doing that. Or, you know what, I did realize I was doing it. So sometimes it's perceived sin, sometimes it's actual sin. So you go to your brother, and, and you're trying to win them back, right, to see, hey, this is not in, in line with a Jesus follower. And so then, oh, man, I see, yeah, I have been doing this. I, here's what I was doing. I lied about you. I did this. I slandered you. Um, I, I did this action. Man, will you forgive me? And there's brokenness. There's repentance. You bet. Because behind me is the cross. And that, that backdrop's what I live in, of course. So that's a good case. That's step one of church formal church discipline. Step two is when the guy says, you're crazy. No, it's not sin. So now you've got the issue of, oh, now I thought it was sin. I was going to my brother. He says it's not sin. Or it may be like, hey, I'm going to you saying this is sin. And he says, yeah, it is. But you know what? You're a jerk also. Well, we're both jerks. So now what, what do we do there? So then there's where that third level of church discipline comes in, where it's like, take it to the elders, take it to the leaders, take it, bring in some other Christians to help me, the one confronting, and this other person to discern and understand, is it clearly sin? Maybe I just went and said, hey, uh, Andy, man, I, I think the clothes that you wear to church are just highly inappropriate. It's just, I mean, just, I hate the shirts that you wear. You need to ask forgiveness. And, and, and he's like, what in the world? And so, I mean, some of you guys have probably had that happen, like where clothing is the issue. And so, um, like, no, I, I don't think so. And maybe I'm the one in the wrong. Um, hey, you, you guys have grown your beards out. Um, I had a professor talk about one time where he was um, confronted by a little old lady after this service. And, you know, they used to, you know, stand up the people. And every, as you walked out, um, they would all shake your hand. And so she said, Pastor, you, you did a really great job. But she goes, I want you to know you're a stumbling block. And this was in the 70s, like 75, and he had grown out a beard. Well, in the 60s, remember the, the crazy 60s and 70s, so anyone who had long hair or beards were looked at as the hippie um, sexual crowd, the, 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 the um, drug-using crowds. And he, she said, you're a, you're a, you've been a stumbling block, and I couldn't receive anything, even though it was a good sermon. He said, without missing a beat, he was like, ma'am, you're wrong. I was no stumbling block. The stumbling block means that I was tempting you to follow in the same thing. That, so are you telling me that you were tempted to grow a beard out now? There, there's no sin there. It was just perceived sin. He was doing nothing wrong. And so um, you have to figure out. So bring other people into the matter. Hey, Andy, I think you're sinning with the shirt that you're wearing. And then I bring two or three brothers in. They go, Sankey, whoa, whoa, what? this is what it was? Like he wasn't doing this or wasn't doing this. Wasn't. It's just his clothing. Sankey, you're clearly out of line. If it was something that was truly sin, oh, he's, he's been lying or slandering you. Do you see that this is sin? And, and then it should help him to do that. So that's church discipline. The last step is when that person goes, you know what? And it's, it's very clear that it's sin among two or three or four witnesses. That, that's, what that, that's a safeguard there. Then take it to the church. So 
Let me give you some examples here of church discipline. So um, different levels here. Um, when we were in uh, Tahlequah for about 10 years, it was very famous. So we've got kids, college students coming to our church from all over Oklahoma. And so all kinds of churches, right? Um, all kinds of backgrounds. And so people, you know, they'll just say things. In small group, they'll just say things. And so I got kind of known for just saying like, hey, where, where'd you get that thought? Where'd you get that? Is that from the Bible? Can, hey, can you show me where that's at in the Bible? And usually, 99% of the time, they're like, uh, and they were taking a little scripture out of context somewhere and attaching a, an idea or a rule to it or a something they thought was truth, and they've got a little out of context scripture, and then we go, let's go to that scripture and find out what they're talking about. And, and it was wrong. And so they, we weren't a biblical literate society. We were just like, we've been taught stuff and we really haven't been taught very well through the Bible. And so very famous, uh, very, very famously, you can just go and, and say, Hey, here, here's what the word says. It's very clear. You've been taught wrong. And so um, that's, that's an issue of church discipline. That's not being brought before the church, is it? That's just a conversation. Um, also, um, re refuting little pieces of falsehood, redirecting to truth. Um, it happens, it could be in small group. I remember even just in the last four, five, six months, we were talking about elders at one point, and I brought out, you know, um, the idea, hey, uh, there's different views on elders, and, and so someone brought up in our group that, um, yeah, um, elders have to be married. And I was like, oh, no, yeah, yeah actually, Paul couldn't be an elder. Um, Jesus couldn't be an elder. If you want to start going down the list, like we don't know that all the disciples. So their view was, oh, he, he, uh, one woman man, he was married man. No, that, that doesn't. He doesn't have to be a married person. And so, do you see where they had been taught for a while, never even just thought through the simplicity of Paul and Jesus are disqualified. It's a bad foundational idea, right? And so, little bitty conversations happen in group. Um, someone says, hey, Jesus was the firstborn. He was created by the Father. Well, we got some stuff in Colossians, him being the firstborn of all creation, but that's a pretty serious one because you're talking about the personhood of Jesus, right? So we know that Jesus coexisted eternally. That's a big one. Don't want to mess up on that one, right? Um, so Jesus wasn't created. So someone says that, that's one that you could listen and you, know, you don't have to like, you know, attack them in group and like, you heretic, get the stake out, start the fire. Um, you, you just like, hey, maybe coffee would good, be a good place to talk about that. Seems to be some confusion on his Christology, right? Someone says, um, um, you know, well, you know we, we're just, we're in this place and I got this old beater car. Well, in the name of Jesus, we're just claiming that we get that 2021, um, uh, was it Tesla, the 2022 Tesla that's coming out. It's 145,000. It's more than our house, but, but in the name of Jesus, we're claiming it. Not as serious as a wrong Christology, but maybe you'd lovingly want to help them, right? Like, and maybe, maybe you need the, the new Tesla, but if you can't afford it, but do you understand the bigger point is that you think that Jesus is obligated to give it to you? So, so that, that's a form of church discipline, that we're, we're correcting someone on just like, just because you thought I quoted in the name of Jesus, I get it, that, that's, a, that's, that's not right. So those are little bitty ideas of church discipline. When you're counseling and discipling people, um, it comes in, I just feel like I'm, we've had this, this may be shocking to you, but we've had a lot of people uh, since in the last 15 years. Uh, good friends have been in church for 10, 15 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaving my wife. She's just not meeting all my needs. I'm leaving my husband. He's not meeting all my emotional needs. 
He's a good provider. He's provided all this work. But, but the Bible says that we're, that we're supposed to be happy, that we're supposed to be joy-filled. And so they're going to churches where they're talking about joy-filled. And they go to counseling. And sometimes at those churches, they tell them, if your husband is not pleasing you, if your wife is not pleasing you, God wants you to be happy. So you're justified in divorcing them. That happens very, very commonly. Church discipline, like, hey, that's not what the Bible's teaching. It's not about your happiness. It's not about your joy. Y'all need lots of work, it sounds like, but that, that's an issue of just going, hey, um, we need to bring in God's word into this. So um, some thinking that gets off track. You got a guy who's wanting to continue in adultery. Um, he, he believes it's justified and right. He's confronted by a brother, and he's still despondent. Um, now he needs some other people to come up and say, hey, do you understand uh, so-and-so went to you and talked to you about this. This is very difficult and awkward, but the most loving thing we can do for your soul, for her soul, for, for your family is to let you know this is, this is clearly sin. This isn't about you and your needs. And so those are forms of church discipline. And the last level being those where, it's, where that person refuses to repent and so we actually have been in a couple of places where that's had to go on. So we're, we're literally, we had, it starts out with worship songs. And the very guy leading the worship song, his son was the one who was on Facebook doing some public um, bashing, horrific bashing of girls in the church. And so we had to publicly handle that. And so um, um, worship leader who was then his son was under church discipline. What people learned in that scenario, for nine months, the, the four of us pastors had been having lunch after lunch after lunch, meeting after meeting after meeting. He had probably had over 20, 25 meetings with people just pleading with him. And the big thing is, that, hey, if you're not a believer, then, then we'll, we'll, we'll pursue a little bit less. But because you're saying you are a believer and you're a member of this church, even though he had lived in, a, he had been living in another place for a while, for several years, and this is like a 23, 24 year old person, like we we were still pursuing him and meeting with him, and going, this is clearly sin, and he he was, just, I don't care, but I'm still a believer and I'm still a member there. You're like, okay, we've we need to deal with this then. So that's very delicate. So we've had a couple of those scenarios. Most of you probably have not been in that situation. So Paul's saying here. The goal here is for the, for the, for the sake of Christ um, that we wouldn't be outwitted by Satan and not be ignorant of his designs. Sin is going to happen inside a local body. We've got to address it in a good way. So um, Paul wants them to, to understand that you've got to be um, seeing that your discipline should lead to the point of there's repentance in that person. Also, there's forgiveness and grace. And if you're going to do this, you better be a person who's learning how to be grace-oriented. We've been around some people before that they, they kind of saw themselves as the um, church discipline police. And they're, it's kind of like they're always looking for, for something. You know, so-and-so, I, I kind of noticed he was doing this. Like, you know, he said something in group. Should, should we, uh, I was just wondering, should we go and pursue it? And you're like, he did it one time. He just said, yeah, uh, uh, she's just hard to deal with sometimes. Man, I'd go talk to him about, like, hey, man, I just want to learn. I want to listen. Is anyone listening? Is everything okay? I just noticed you said this. You don't come down with five guys and go, are you about to leave your wife? You're doing this wrong. So, do you see, we need to be grace-oriented and forgiving. And when we see things happening. Now, if it, every week he talks about this ridiculous, stupid person I'm married to, and she's stupid and dumb. And I, I've been in some settings where that's what the wife was doing to the husband. It's like, man, this is awkward. But is anyone stepping up and pursuing her? 
Is anyone stepping up and lovingly confronting those things? So that's the the, the picture of of church discipline there. And he says, rather turn to forgive and comfort him. This guy had repented or he's going to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So we have a lot of people now that that really struggle with, with guilt and shame, even though they know the truths of the gospel, Right? And so it's not helping if we're just laying and heaping more law and law and law and law on them. And so the grace of the gospel, there's there's good news here, brother. There's good news here, sister. So that's what Paul's doing in that section. And the second area in verses 12 through 13, um, and I bring that out. So I, I spent quite a bit of time there because we are a church that believes in practicing church discipline. Again, it may be having lunch and someone just goes, well, you know, God created Jesus and he was the first one created. And you're like, that's not what that means. And you're just eating French fries. And you're like, oh, really? Like, yeah, when Colossians says this, let's go look at that a little bit. Let's spend a couple of weeks looking at that. Oh, man, I didn't know that. My mom, to her dying day, believed that you know, little baby Jesus didn't come till later on. Like, he, she, didn't, she could not fathom that Jesus was coexisting with the Father and with the, with the Holy Spirit for all eternity. That Jesus was involved in creation. The Holy Spirit was involved with creation. She thought God the Father was the only one on the scene, big beard, kind of angry guy. And then finally, little baby Jesus was born, and he was all about grace. And so that was her view to her dying day. And so um, we, we used to joke about that. And so I, I want you to know that we are a place that we will do that. But hopefully we're so, so grace and truth oriented that that's just coming out in conversations. That, that it's not turning into little gossip prayer groups. It's not turning into little uh, slandering sessions. That, that's a place where we're going, the most loving thing we can do is try to be conformed to Christ together. We are all sinful. Don't have to get embarrassed about it. We don't have to be shamed by it. We, we can go, man, we are weak. We need Christ. Um, and let's be authentic in that. Let, let's say, man, I, I know I'm not okay. I know you're not okay. Let's be okay with that. But let's not just say, well, then that, I'm not okay. I guess I can just go cheat on my wife. No, no, that's not walking towards Christ. So that I uh, spend some time on there just to let you know we are a church that wants to be like that. Um, in 12 through 13, he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, a door's opened. And my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. So notice this. There's the church that they would planted, and, and, and they were struggling. And God opens a door. Now, there's all kinds of practical implications. There's all kinds of questions to that. Like, what do we do if, if God's doing this work over here, and then we start this other work, and God seems to be doing something? Um, a lot of people will spend some time thinking through like, oh, should Paul have left that? And should he have started that up? It seems like in Troas. Well, in, in this situation, I, I, I think he was a man of prayer. I, I think Paul was probably having quiet times. And so I think that you know he, he probably heard pretty clearly from the Lord. And, and then here we find out that the, the fruit of that is the letter 2 Corinthians, that, hey, I'm now writing this inspired by the Holy Spirit to correct some things because this is a good example for the church to be aware of. And so he says there that even though that I went that way, um, it, I, I was chained or I was turned to, to focus back on you. So what I want you to see there is his concern for the Corinthians. I want you to see the the care, the pastoral heart that Paul has for these people. He's letting them know of his love for them, even though they've kind of discarded and despised him. They saw him as worthless. Even though there was a lot of hurt there, he was still turning towards them. So we we see this in our day. Um, 
Some pastors and leaders want to use churches to make them look good, or sometimes you've got guys who just have this void, and, they're, and you can tell. I mean, it's almost like they, they even say it like once every four weeks, like, I'm just kind of insecure, never felt popular, never felt very loved by my daddy. I need bigger crowd. I need you to go get more people to fill the seats. And you're like, is this what we're gathering for? Because you've got this huge void, this emotional void. And so people will say that. Some guys will just say, I'm just doing it because there's lots of money. The more people we gather, the richer I get. In the name of Jesus, bow your heads, close your eye. And you're like, I can't, I mean, you're going to face Jesus. You're going to face the bearded guy about using him to, to, to make your life more comfortable. Um, they use people and churches as stepping stones. Uh, in seminary, I had guys sometimes that was like, yeah, we're, I'm at this church of 200, but hey, this church in St. Louis, it's like 600. And so we're really looking at that. And then the guys are like, hey, I, we're at a church of 600, but man, there's this church of 1,200 or 1,500. Do you, know what, do you know what the salary is there? And you just think through, when did that become? Like, that's a lot of people. But are you concerned about souls? Are you concerned about soul care and faithfully communicating God's word? Or have you taken a business approach of you using people as a stepping stone to get more in life? Maybe to be more respected. Maybe to be more appreciated. Um, some pastors shepherd and serve and pray and care for other people to no benefit for themselves. Even being willing to say very difficult things at the risk of people leaving. The most loving thing I could say to you is, man, this is, this is going on in your life and, and you can't do that. Well, forget you. Hey, the most loving thing I say to you is we're not going to do church just the way that you want it as a consumer. We're not doing that. Well, forget you. There's a lot of others that will that'll take us. You're right. And so the most loving thing you can do sometimes is, is like Paul, like I'm going to say some hard things in this letter. And it's very loving for him to do that. So in this last section, 14 through 17, I want you to see the beauty here of the aroma and this awakening. Even though Paul saw that God was working powerfully in this new area, he, he turns back to the Corinthians. And notice that the word that starts out the contrast were but. It's like he's saying, this didn't even make sense, but thanks be to God that although a door had been opened and I was concerned about you Corinthians, thanks be to God who is leading us to continue in labor in weakness and suffering. Because the terms he goes into, notice what he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads a fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So this idea of triumphal procession was very clear. It happened about once in a lifetime for these people. So this is when a new king or a new governor or a, a new um, a master, come in, an area, that a new a leader took over an area and they would have, after their cities or their regions, uh, people were overtaken in military, the new king would bring this huge parade. And it's not like a, a two-hour parade or three-hour parade, it would sometimes be sometimes just days and days that they would do this. And they would do it uh, through and then come back through. And so the leader, the new king, the new governor would be at the front of that and dressed in the finest of, of robes and all those things in this fancy cart that was carried along, uh, horse-drawn carriage. And so they would have all the riches and the plunder from your town that just got beat down. 
from your country that just got beat down. And so this triumphal procession would go through. And so then after the, the king was in the front of this thing, then there would be all his commanders and his generals. And then there would be all the soldiers. Sometimes that would go on like tens of thousands of soldiers. And so here you are, you're this beat down, you know, culture now. You're this beat down city and, and, and that the, they've just defeated your um, governing bodies. And now they're doing this huge parade. And so it speaks a couple of things. Now you serve us. Now we are your authority. And secondly, see how powerful we are? We already defeated you. Don't you dare try to raise up a coup. So it was kind of this like, man, just a beat down. And so then after that, they would have, after in this procession, they would have the, the soldiers. Then they would bring in um, all, all the, the spoils and all the riches. And so sometimes, you know, like, hey, that's from our, like our city's, um, you know, main place where, we, where they kept all the, the royalties. And so gold and all kinds of uh, plunder would be uh, just, just hauled out in front of them, just saying, we're taking this from you. Animals that were used for sacrifices and things. And then they would have those jesters, and it was kind of like the entertainment part. So it's kind of like maybe our our parades nowadays like that's the only thing we have left and so um, that part we go through and then at the very end they would have these carts with literally you've probably seen it on some movies where it had the little prison cells up on a cart and those were the, the people that were now slaves that were either facing death um, or were going to be slaves their entire uh, rest of their life sometimes it was really brutal uh, especially uh, a couple of different groups the romans were one and some others that they would tie people's hands and legs together and drag them just drag and so after you know a few miles, that didn't look very good. Just drag them just to show them that they are, they are a waste to us. And if you get in our way, that will happen to you. Notice Paul says, but, but, but notice what Christ is doing there. He says, but for us, who in Christ, all, he always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He uses the picture of this, this parade that's going through and says, Christ uses us in this triumphal procession. And so those um, in the middle of that, they would have incense burning and different things. And sometimes if it was a pagan or another religion, they would have incense burning, kind of saying, hey, our God has triumphed over your God. And so that, that just this fog, this smoke would fill the whole area, the whole township. And so it would, sometimes the remnant would be there. The smell would definitely be there, not just, just for a couple hours, but sometimes days. And so Paul is, those people, you, you've probably been places where you, you go into an area and you smell something and it reminds you of something else, or you see something and it reminds you of something else. Paul was using this to say, hey, that, that's what God is doing with us. It, it should be permeating this place like a fog. Except what was Paul saying? Was, was he saying, I'm the general at the front. I'm the, the one that's um, at, the, at the front as the winner, as the leader. Notice Paul's theme to them. He's wanting them to see we're at the end of the procession. We're the ones that are encaged. We're the ones who have been beaten down. We're the ones who may be facing death. You Corinthians prize success and honor and glory, and we're following Christ, and we're at the end of the processional. That's who you're despising. We're identifying with Christ as being at the end. Last of all, at the very end of the procession, these captives were on display. So he um, says, we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So what that's saying is that those who hear this message and see this and make this connection with Christ, 
People are coming to Christ. But, but the truth about us, when it's going out in the gospel message to some, they're rejecting it because they're rejecting the truth of the gospel. They do not want God's grace. They do not want God's truth. You, Corinthians, you see that. You see the clear message that we've communicated, and, and people are rejecting it and hating it and serving the same gods, living the same ways. But, but some, you're seeing it. Some are being saved. Some are growing and maturing. And so it's like this, this, this wave, this aroma. But it creates an awakening in some to where some are awakened to new life. And so that's what he, what he says there in that section. Um, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So you see Paul's making the connection. Eight times so far in just the first chapter, he brought up the references of suffering and affliction. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, 7 through 12. Um, I have a slide for this one. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. You ever feel that way? When it first hits your life, you think, what's going on? Like, we've been trying to serve God. We've been trying to pray We've been giving faithfully. We've been coming. What's going on? That's what's going on. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. Is that the, is that the Christianity that you got sold? Always being over, given over to death? Or was it, if you accept this Jesus, he'll take away all your problems. Bow your head, close your eyes, repeat this after me. That didn't work in Paul's day. It's only actually been working in the last 120 years. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus may also be manifest. So notice that first part, but we have this treasure. So what treasure? It doesn't feel like a treasure. Paul describes us as, this is the treasure. You're being afflicted. You're going through these things. It's a treasure in very, very weak, broken vessels, jars of clay. And so if you remember, um, when we get to this section, chapter 4, is that right? Chapter 4, I'll explain a little bit more. But in this city, Corinth, they had these temples, and people would come for healings, not Christianity healings, but they would come with a broken arm. And so you go to this temple, and it was kind of like the Build-A-Bear in the mall, where you get to go, there and like, yeah, can you see my arm? It's all jacked up. It's been jacked up for a long time. Oh, yes, our God can heal that. We've got to make a little uh, clay thing of an arm, and then you tie a string to it, and you hang it up here, or you put it in this little jar of clay, this little picture, a little clay thing that they would fire in, in, in those uh, ovens. And now that would be hanging, thousands of those. So Paul's using that reference like, hey, that, that's, not where, that's not where you get the healing. So we have this treasure in jars of clay. You thought you'd come go to healing to, to get it healed by some foreign god that hang up this little you know, piece of clay. That's not it. We have this treasure in jars of clay that we are going to be broken. 
We are going to be afflicted. We are going to go through suffering. And God is right in control of all that, but he's still worthy of praise. We're facing death all the time. You're worried about a broken arm. Hey, all of this that we're going through, he's in control of. So this valuable thing in a common, simple, plagued, broken vessel um, it's to show off God's power, always showing identification with him. And notice in verse 16, 4, 16 through 18, it says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you ever feel like that's what's happening with life? Our outer self is wasting away. Now, if you're in your 20s and 30s, you might feel like, no, I don't feel like that at all. Man, you hit like your mid-40s, and all of a sudden you just, like you're getting out of bed in the morning, and you hurt yourself. You just, you're sitting up, and all of a sudden, like, I may need to go to ER. What happened? Did you step on something sharp? No, my body just twanged, and I don't know what happened. And so that, that's what can happen. And he, he's going, um, our, outer, our outer self is, is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So when we're going through suffering and affliction, Paul's telling them, we've done all of this and we're going through this, keeping our gaze fixed on Christ. And it's for your good that salvation has come, that the gospel message has come to you. But you've seen our affliction and weakness as something that takes us as, as disqualified. And so he's trying to get that across to them. Um, I remember we were at Grace in, in Tahlequah, and they had a pastor appreciation meeting. And um, at the time, I think I was about 32 or 33. And for some reason, just I started having like about six, seven times a year, I would be flat on my back. My back would be out. And so like for six or seven days. And we had tons of college students come over. And I would literally, we lived in this little trailer house. And so the master bedroom was at this end. And so when I would lay on the bed on Saturdays, all these people would come over, like 25 people for, to watch OU games. And if my back was out, I would be laying there. I could look down through the door and see, you know, 25 people having a great time, you know, having a blast. And, uh, but, but I'm laid out for seven days in extreme pain and couldn't even move and stuff. And so it was nice of Jamie to still have those parties. And so, uh, I remember uh, pastor appreciation. We couldn't figure out what's going on and this kept going. And so Chris Robinson, we pray for them sometimes. They're over in Latvia now. They were in the, in um, Indonesia for about 10 years. And so um, everyone's like, giving like, well, pastor, uh, well, I appreciate you because of this or that. And so Chris is pretty strong in the gift of prophecy. And so um, he, and remember prophecy doesn't mean I predict the future. Like, um, I think this is going to happen this week. It's, it's like your, your words are um, spoken with the word of Christ and that, that there's some weight that comes with that, that, that kind of fits and ties in with your life, your life. And so Chris stands up and I was thinking, he's like, hey, I want to say something towards Sankey. And it's like he had these two scriptures. So that last part that we just read there, and then this 2 Corinthians 12, um, three times I'll plead with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I... I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Paul was saying that to them. We had no idea at 32 or 33 what we were going to go through. I thought back pain and being in a bed with back pain was tough. I would, I would sign on for that every day compared to things that we've been through since then. So Chris was speaking a prophetic word almost over me, just saying like, 
Here's a, here's a life verse for you, Sankey. Remember this one. Quote this one. Memorize this. I am content. I am content in all those things. And so think about that. Just are, are we a people that are content? I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak and destroyed and can't do anything, that's when God gets the most glory. That's when God is showing his power. Some of you may be going through things that that's exactly what you felt like. And we wonder, why is this calamity? Why is this difficulty? Why is this affliction? It's, you're identified with Christ. Don't let it surprise us. Um, Paul had counted the cost of suffering and deemed Christ and association with Christ worthy of whatever that would bring. So don't be surprised when these things come and hit. Don't be surprised by the afflictions that hit or lost. Let, let me ask you, um, maybe you've been in the church for a while, but have you graduated from counting the cost? Do you feel like that after 10 years, you've got your um, tenure in Christianity now, and I, I don't think that I should be counting the cost anymore? Because maybe he's going, let me introduce you again to counting the cost. Let me introduce you again to counting the cost of following Christ. Um, have you relapsed into self-seeking or comfort or bought into another version of following Jesus? Have you counted the cost lately? Um, Paul's version was, at the end, a triumphal procession, captivated, enslaved to Christ. I'm at the end of that always carrying around the death of Christ, always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, our outer self wasting away, our inner self being renewed. We are scum of the world. We are the refuse of all things. Jesus said, if anyone's going to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And every bit of that, they were going, that discredits you, Paul. And, and he was going, no, this is my story. This is what God has brought to us. And so, the authority lies with, with that. So I want you to think through that as we, as we continue through the, the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, Paul says that we're, we're insufficient for these things. He asked that rhetorical question in verse 16. Who's sufficient for these things? It's no one. But we haven't um, went to peddling God's word. He says, um, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak Christ. And so, just like in Paul's day, people began to modify and peddle God's word. Meaning, so peddlers, their reputation was in the marketplace. They were the ones that used um, false weights. So when they were giving you a pound of flour, um, it wasn't a pound of flour because they could save and they could give you less and get more, more of your money. It wasn't a pound of, of whatever spice. It wasn't um, this gallon of wine. It was watered down and watered down, and they modified and modified it. And so Paul's saying, we are not like those who have modified God's message, who have modified God's word. We're in a culture where most uh, people, all the books say that American Christianity is a very um, biblically illiterate and it's because a lot of leaders and churches have modified the message. Um, it wouldn't be popular to teach a, a book about affliction and suffering as possibly the norm. When everyone else around is, is saying, no, it's about if you're in Christ, then it's only a, a, a 
trajectory of, of winning and only a trajectory of success, success, success. Because when that doesn't happen, where's your God? So as we continue through this, you can see um, why are so many buying into the same idea of, of another Jesus, another version of Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit, the same thing Paul's battling with these Corinthians. He's saying there, as we look at the Lord's Supper every week, we get this um, um, picture of celebrating and proclaiming what? Every week we get to take part of this picture that, that we think is just, you know, kind of if, if you're not careful, you go through a ritual. But we do this every week. What are we celebrating? A man broken, his blood spilled out. What are we proclaiming? A man broken, his blood spilled out. And we're saying we want that almost to just like cover us and to walk out into the world with that kind of aroma, with the hope of that kind of awakening. We want that blood, his body, the death of Christ to be what we're walking in. And just know that, that that's not popular. Just know that there's probably, there may be some of you who are going, that doesn't even fit with what I've been hearing the last few years. That's not what sells Christian books. That's not what grows big, big churches sometimes. And yet that's what we celebrate every week, saying this man's blood spilt, this man's body broken is what we're identifying with. We shouldn't be surprised when, when the world doesn't understand us. We shouldn't be surprised when affliction comes. Today's um, revealing contrast in version of following Jesus may be the exact opposite of the version that we've been subtly accepting and listening to. And remember, I'm not saying that you should suffer all the time or that you need to go out looking for suffering, um, that uh, you may be in a great season of comfort and success and, and you are following Christ. So I'm not saying that if you are in that season um, that, that, that you're out of God's will. We're simply looking at and reporting what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that um, so far the, the theme in this has been that God's paradigm of weakness and suffering in us shows forth God's glory. What I might suggest is whether you're um, sensing attack from others, sensing weakness, um, being reviled, being persecuted, being slandered, just try embracing it. Just try embracing it. You can choose not to be a part of the outrage culture. You can choose not to be a part of the cancel culture. We might just outwit Satan and his schemes, and just going, we're not going to be a part of that. Be okay with looking weak, maybe stupid, maybe disrespected for the sake of identifying with Christ because of what we celebrate each week, because of the truth that we say we hold to. It's okay. Just embrace it. They're going to look down on you. You don't have to be at the top. It's okay to be viewed as at the end. And just being okay with that because Christ would be walking with you there. Okay? So let me pray and we'll go to the Lord's Supper.